Well, thanks very much, uh, El, and, and thanks very much, everyone, for allowing me to come and talk to you. It really is a privilege, and as I say, I'm really, really encouraged to be here, to see so many young people, and it isn't only young people, David, but, <laughs> but to, see only, to see so many young people and, uh, and know that all of you, and I know David working up there uh, Crossroads, that I got such an effect uh, with young people in the ANU, that, uh, you see, young people, you're the ones who have a future, you know? You're the ones that are going to move this nation for Christ, and so I'm very privileged to be able to talk to you. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, leadership and strategy. I guess I can't, can I change the things from here? No? No, I can't. I'll just raise my hand or lift my leg or something. Um, I'm going to talk to you about leadership and strategy. Oh, wrong. No, sorry. Didn't mean to lift it. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you about leadership and strategy and church planning, okay? And, uh, and let me tell you that in doing that, and it's always very difficult, when you get up and talk on leadership, everyone thinks, well, you must presume that you know everything about it. I don't for a moment, okay? Uh, I will say that I'm its avid student because nothing happens without leadership. Uh, my girls, I, I grew up in, uh, or sorry, I have an all-girl family. Uh, my wife's a woman, which you've got to say these days, and I've got two daughters. And uh, I was uh, uh, in SAS, and you can get a big head from being in SAS, but uh, I, commanding it, I guess you really can, and I must have been in that state, because uh, we were driving past the, uh, past the gates of the regiment one morning, and uh, as we went past, it was a Saturday morning, I had my two daughters in the back seat, and my three-year-old, said, she said, Daddy, she said, do you really own all the men in there? And before I could answer, which is probably good enough or just as well, uh, my six-year-old said, no, Becky, he just thinks he does. <laughs> so I really had my ego kept in place, you know, very much about this all-girl family. But the fact is that leadership is about getting things from somewhere to somewhere else, you know. We've got to accept this right from the beginning. And it doesn't matter whether you're church planting or you're doing something else. If you're leading then you're given a task to take something from somewhere to somewhere else. And I'd say to all of you, you know, at the end of the year, at the end of your three years, at the end of your term in any leadership position, I'd really encourage you to ask yourself, have I moved this thing? Right? Because particularly as Christians, I believe that that's what God has given us, this, this great trust, right, called whatever it is we're called upon to lead. He's given it to us to move from somewhere to somewhere else. Now, strategy is, is absolutely important to leadership because it's the part that joins the dots. <laughs> and uh, it's no good getting out there and, and being the best leader in the world, having a charismatic personality, if you haven't joined the dots because nothing's going to move. Okay? So strategy and leadership are very, very uh, essential to each other. Okay? And you can't have, to be effective, one without the other. So what I'm going to try to do tonight is uh, to try to pick out of both leadership and strategy different aspects, things that I, I hope you'll find new and uh, interesting, and, and perhaps different emphasis on certain parts of leadership and certain parts of strategy that I see as really important to this task of church planting. Okay? And uh, I won't necessarily relate them directly to church planting, although I'll, I'll try to along the way. But I hope that you'll draw out anything that I've failed to do in the question time. We can, you know, go down a little bit deeply, more deeply. Unfortunately, leadership in Australia isn't always uh, what we'd wanted to do. Certainly where I work in uh, the Australian Christian Lobby, uh, public leadership is often the person who's supposed to be leading, chasing the constituency, okay, as this cartoon shows. And the really sad thing is, that we probably look at that and think, well, members of parliament, politics is always like that, you know? But the church is not much different either. The church, in supposedly providing leadership to the nation, leadership to the community, I believe is failing to do that in every way that that, that particular diagram or cartoon shows that pol uh, politics, for instance, is doing it. Maybe I'll, I'll just tell you when to change it. <laughs> Because I'm going to wave my hands all day. <laughs> we can get through this real quick. <laughs> but, the, but the church is no different. Okay, in the United Kingdom, we have this been said recently about the church. Now, that is just one of many commentaries that we've uh, seen recently in the United Kingdom of a nation that suddenly realises, you know, its value system is gone. And the people who are commentating on this are blaming the church. 
One bishop in the, uh, the oh no, sorry, one secular journalist said, and, and this is amazing, this bloke, I thought he must have been Christian, he wasn't Christian at all. But he said the church has followed a strategy of absolute, um, absolute submission, I think it was, right? Absolute submission. I mean, there's no such strategy. <laughs> I've been studying strategy for years, right? But there's no such strategy. But this is what the church has appeared to do to any attack on its ideology, he said. So we've got to, in the church, start providing leadership. Amazing thing to me is I went to a Anglican baptism in Sydney here, uh, not that long ago. And uh, when I was there, and I won't get the words right, uh, totally right, so please forgive me. But uh, I was really impressed by the fact that the rector got this baby from the font, held it up and said, fight bravely against the world and the devil. Isn't that what they say? Words to that effect? And I thought, how terrific. <laughs> fight bravely against the world and the devil. And I thought, what happens along the way? You know? What happens along the way when we see that said about the church in the UK and we could equally provide it, uh, say it here? But I think the, uh, the reality is that we get scared of the consequences of fighting bravely. And leadership is about standing up in front of something, you know, about being prepared to take the consequences. I read a book recently called Roots for Radicals. I'd recommend it to you. I'm not sure of the theology of it. I don't know about you, but I've uh, just cleared up my, uh, my uh, table beside my bed. I took 96 books off it. <laughs> All of them I'd read part of. <laughs> and I, this is one that I haven't got right the way through. And I'm a little doubtful about some of the theology in it. But nonetheless, some of the principles in it, if applied uh, to the theology that you and I have, an evangelical theology, right, eh, bring great lessons to it. And this one said, uh, next slide, this one said there are two worlds, the world as it is and the world as it should be. And embracing this tension is our spiritual destiny. And I've got to say, I reckon that's pretty right, you know. I reckon it's something we've got to accept. No, that there is tension in leading. There is tension in accepting that we want, it to, we want to move this world to a world that should be. And we can't back back from it. Okay? We've got to take it on. And if you're going to church plant, if you're going to stand up for Christ, then we've got to take it on. And we shouldn't be surprised because the reality is there's a tension there because we know we're in a spiritual battle. Don't we? Yeah. And so... I'd like to suggest to you that the things I'm going to talk to you about in terms of strategy are absolutely appropriate and applicable to what you do because it's about a battle. And strategy evolved out of battlefield, out of the battlefield. The fact that we were there in a competition, okay, between good and evil, right, on the battlefield, between one side and the other. And so the ideas that I'm going to put forward to you, mainly out of the battlefield, I think are very, very relevant. And certainly I've, I've used them. But before we do that, I'd just like to look and talk through um, the best definition of leadership that I've ever seen. And it's this one. This is uh, a definition given by Field Marshal Sir William Slim. He was a bloke who took the, the army in Burma during the Second World War. Uh, it had been defeated continually by the Japanese. It was outnumbered three to one. Uh, and uh, it was sick with malaria. It was at the lowest priority for everything, but he took it and turned it around and they won. And he had nothing to win with but leadership. And he wrote subsequently a book called Defeat into Victory. But this is the best definition of leadership I believe you'll ever get. And he gave it to a group of businessmen down in Adelaide when he was our Governor General, when he'd been asked to define what the difference was between management and leadership. And he said, well, he said, that's easy. He said, management is, of, is about things, you know, it's about, it's about numbers, right? It's, it's very important but it's about things. But he said, leadership is of the spirit and it's compounded by uh, personality and vision, right? It's of the spirit. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail on this. I, I love to pull this apart and really get into it, to tell you the truth. But what I want you to note from it particularly, because it's so important is, is that if leadership is, about, is of the spirit, right? You have to when you're leading, and I don't care what it is, you know? If you're setting up a church, it's going to be tough. <laughs> It's going to be tough. The devil's going to attack like crazy, right? And you're going to want people to do things that don't seem intuitive, right? That if you're looking at it from a management point of view, seem daft, okay? 
But leadership's of the spirit, and what it means is if you're going to get people to do things that they wouldn't normally do, you've got to understand that you're reaching down to grab their spirit. You're not appealing to their head. You have to appeal to people's head. You imagine a soldier on the battlefield, a young corporal, has to lead 10 men to attack a machine gun. Now, we only get 10 men to attack a machine gun because we know only seven will get there. You reckon the young corporal appeals to the head? Of course not. Yeah? The young corporal on the battlefield instead reaches down inside the blokes and he grabs their spirit and he causes their heart to take them where their head won't. Right? And I'm going to suggest to you if you're planning a church, if you're starting anything new, or if you're just doing something successful and the devil doesn't want it to succeed, then you're going to get attacks that are going to cause everybody, if they use their head, to want to back out, want to go somewhere else. Right? And so if we're in this business, God's business, we've got to be able to actually appeal to the spirit, to grab the spirit, to realise in everything that we're doing as we lead that we're trying to appeal to the spirit and we're trying to get the bloke's heart or person's heart to take them where their head wouldn't take them. It's a really important thing. Now the second thing there, and I'm just going to deal with this very quickly, is, is he says it's compounded by personality first, okay? By personality first. And let me tell you that because it's of the spirit, and because we're trying to reach down inside the person and grab that spirit, what it means is that it's, it, it's the personality that can communicate to the spirit. It's not about someone who can stand up on a soapbox. If you're not a person there who feels you've got that sort of personality, don't worry about it. That's not the personality we're talking about. I remember hearing um, the deputy, uh, former Deputy Prime Minister uh, um, Fisher uh, talking. And he was asked uh, at the end of a lecture, and it had nothing to do with leadership, but he was asked at the end of a lecture, what are the three most important uh, characteristics of leadership? He said, that's easy. He said, they're communication, communication, and communication. And he's dead right, you know. But they're only important because we're trying to move the spirit, okay? Now, if you think about it, how do you move someone's spirit with communication? Okay, you do it by looking through their eyes. <laughs> okay, you don't do it under file new email. You do it by looking at their eyes. Right? And what it says to me, and what I've learnt many, many times, is if you're going to lead people, you've got to go and sit on their desks and talk into their eyes. You've got to make the time for doing this. You, know? you can't do it by remote control. Because if you're going to reach the spirit of people, there's only one place you're going to reach it, and that's through their eyes. And you've got to get there and talk to them and spend time in doing it. It's very, very important. And, of course, the other element of uh, personality is that you've got to have the strength of personality. You've got to have the strength of personality to discipline yourself, <laughs> to discipline yourself to be an example. Because people forgive, forgive all sorts of things that you fail to do. But the big one is you've got to have the discipline to, uh, the self-discipline to discipline yourself on is integrity. Okay? Because I, I've been told, I don't know how many times, by soldiers, just in conversation, that, uh, you know, they'll forgive anything. And I was the sort of bloke used to make loads of mistakes. They had to forgive things all the time, okay? But they won't forgive a, bra a breach of integrity. Right? And that's from private soldiers, <laughs> right? And so you've got to have the personality that can communicate through the eyes, and we've got to have the strength to discipline ourselves <laughs> more than anything else. Now, the last one there, though, personality and vision. I want to spend a little bit of time on this vision because this is really important if you're going to lead in the sort of situation that uh, you're looking at. Vision is really important because leadership is a spiritual business, okay? Uh, if, if we think about it, how did God motivate the great men of the Bible? He threw out a vision before them. And because vision motivates the spirit, stimulates the spirit. Mm -hmm. So vision in this spiritual business called leadership is extremely important. It's got a really bad press over the years, right? Eh? As uh, all these management gurus came into companies and with all this management speak, and then of course when all that failed, you know, all the management speak became a casualty, including things like vision. But vision is absolutely important because uh, this is a spiritual business. Now, importantly for the leader, it's the most important work of the strategic leader. It is the front-end work. If you don't do it, nothing happens. <laughs> if you haven't put the vision out that people are stimulated to follow, you might as well not lead. Right? It is the most important thing. And you've got to do it before anything else. 
Importantly too, and you might just think about this, uh, I'm a great believer in the fact that you can make leaders, you know. I've spent half my life making leaders. But <laughs> there's one type of leader you can't make, right? It is the strategic leader. And some of you might be sitting there um, unsure whether you've got this sort of ability. And if you haven't, what I'd say to you is someone in the team will have it. One of your superiors will have it. I know El's got it. I know David's got it, okay? And that is that strategic leader has to be able to see the whole elephant, right? Not everybody can see the whole elephant. Some people look at an elephant, they only see the side of it, right? But the strategic leader must be able to see the whole elephant. Do you understand what I'm saying in that? Okay? And so I would say to you that if, you, if you're not sure you've got that uh, ability, then fill the gap, okay, with someone helping you in that particular area because it's important. Now, I want to look at this uh, area of vision just a little bit, uh, a little bit further. Um, it's important when you're trying to place vision, when you're getting, uh, trying, to, trying to formulate a vision, that, that you do it in the, in the way that you place yourself out where you want to be. <laughs> but you've got to go all the way out to where you want to be. Okay? For instance, I would like to, I would like to think that uh, you are not planting churches just to have a good church. If you did that, I think your vision's somewhere up here. Okay? But if you placed yourself right out into where you want to be, I would hope, and obviously I'm biased in this going from the Australian Christian Lobby, I would like to think that you're trying to plant churches that will win nations. <laughs> and if you don't start from that point, you'll only develop a vision. You'll only develop a strategy that goes halfway. Okay? So it's really important that when you're trying to formulate a vision, you put yourself all the way out to where you want to be. Don't limit God right, by where you put yourself out to look back. Right? And as you're looking back, it's important that you look through tomorrow. This is about joining the dots, as I said, you know. If you haven't got a, a plan that takes you all the way from here to there, then you're not leading, you're abrogating your responsibility. You've got to have a plan. It's your responsibility as a leader with vision, not just to throw it out there, but to give people the direction, the strategy to actually get there. Now you'll see there on that diagram too, that this diagram looks back into yesterday. And this is really important. Let me give you an example. In the SAS Regiment, I don't know how many commanding officers during the time, the uh, uh, eight and a half years I spent all together in SAS, came into the place and wanted to play around with something which to everybody was sacred. Sacred. <laughs> and that was the SAS Beret. The SAS Beret is something that you win. <laughs> and uh, we don't give it lightly. Very few people get through the course. And it's what binds the blokes together. It's what's causing these blokes to fight and die for each other now in Afghanistan is that beret. I know it sounds stupid, but it is. Right? It's what that beret stands for. Right? And yet we had people come in and wanted to play with it. They wanted to give it to everybody, whether they had passed the course or not, who was in the unit, because everybody would then feel like they're all part of the unit more. You know? And it was a nonsense. And if you don't take account of these very important parts of yesterday, which actually hold the whole thing together in, in formulating your vision and formulating your strategy to get there, then you know, you're not being responsible as a leader right? and you'll miss really important ingredients in, in your means of getting there. So it's important to think about yesterday as much as anything else. Now this next uh, diagram just shows you that, uh, as I mentioned really, that vision is fine, but you've got to have Strategy, you've got to be able to join the dots. I remember uh, when I was, um, just before I left the Army actually, I was actually working in a job where Army, Navy and Air Force were all together and I was commanding the, uh, the Army part of it. And we used to work in a joint environment, had sailors, soldiers and airmen around. And I saw a group of sailors at one stage over looking at uh, some uh, little pamphlets that the Chief of Navy had put out and laughing their heads off. And so I went over and I said, well, what's the joke, fellas? Let me in on it. And they said, oh, well, he said, here's another um, brochure from the Chief of Navy telling us about his vision. He said, they're all having visions up there. He said, they're all on drugs, he said, I'm sure, you know, these neighbours, uh, these sailors. They were laughing their heads off because as far as they're concerned, they never got the dots joined, you know. And so for them, it was just another vision, wasn't going to go anywhere. And so you've got to make sure that we have the strategy to get there. Now, importantly, too, with vision and, and, 
and essential to vision and essential to the leader's responsibility in it is, I'm just going to pick two things. One is you've got to resource a vision. You've got to resource a vision. It is absolutely wrong to cast out a vision and then not resource it. Right? it, uh, it you, you must resource a vision. And people will quickly lose faith in a vision and your ability to cast vision and their willingness to follow you if you're continually throwing out visions that aren't resourced. The second thing is that the leader's role in vision isn't just putting the thing together, which usually you do corporately anyway, so people have ownership of it. It isn't just doing that. It is also, and more importantly, about holding it out there in front of people continuously. Right? Continuously holding it out in front of people. When I commanded the SAS regiment, I would reckon quite honestly, I spent 60% of my time, not exaggerating, 60% of my time around giving the vision to people, testing the vision, seeing people had the vision, right? Because it's that important. Your job is to hold it out there. It's not, it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't serve vision well. If you've got all the windows in a place blocked off from natural light with vision statements, <laughs> right? It has no effect on people. What you've got to do is get out there and talk to people and make sure they understand the vision. I'm going to talk to you in a little while about uh, um, one method of leadership in doing that. And I'll just say at this point, what's important as you go around is not for people to parrot back to your vision. Right? What's important as you go around will move your organisation, move what you're doing to a new level if people can parrot back to you, or say to you rather, not parrot to you, say to you what their part in the vision is. Right? This is the powerful thing about vision is people be able to tell you what their part in the vision is. Right? And, uh, and so vision is very important and your job is to hold it out. It's interesting that uh, in the ancient world, I think we have a really good analogy <clears throat> or example by analogy uh, of vision. Alexander the Great was a, uh, a great soldier we can, and leader, we can assume. He certainly conquered, uh, uh, I think, most of the known world by the time he was about 34. And, uh, and he had to walk everywhere to get there too, so not bad. <laughs> and, uh, and Alexander, during the time that he was, uh, uh, he was king and he was campaigning, uh, would, like everyone else in those days, all other commanders in those days, by convention, uh, and we saw this if you look at the biblical account of David and Goliath and the, and the battle that uh, fought, was fought there, the armies would line themselves up opposite each other. They might stay in that situation for days. You know? They might stay there for weeks until one commander thought there was a weakness in the other side or a particular advantage and then he'd give the order for the attack. Usually by convention, a battlefield would be chosen where the commanders would have a slightly elevated view. It was just a convention, you know, sort of like playing cricket, <laughs> part of warfare. And, uh, and so these uh, fellows would be there. Now, Alexander, as I said, would do this like the other commanders of his day. And, uh, and once the battle was joined, Alexander would, like the other commanders of his day, send messages through couriers who, or runners who would run down to the battlefield commanders on the battlefield and they, he would tell them he wanted them to go this way or that way, uh, you know, to do particular things to try to carry the battle. But at that point where Alexander knew the battle had to be carried, what we call in the military where the main effort had to be applied, where that effort that was going to turn the battle in our favour, Alexander, quite differently from other commanders, would don the gaudiest of armour. He'd put on a, a really gaudy helmet with plumes racing off it so everybody on the battlefield could see him. He'd go down to that point in the battlefield and he'd go right to where he wanted his army to mass, you know, where he wanted it to align its ranks. And battle after battle, he carried the battle because everybody knew where he wanted them to be, you know. Now this to me is a great analogy, an analogy for the fact that the leader's role with vision is to hold it out in front. You know? Now importantly too for a Christian leader is that there are consequences for doing that. Alexander died by the time he was about 36 we believe. You know? And the most likely reason that he died at that age was from the cumulative effect of, of uh, the wounds he sustained as he held this vision out in front of his troops in battle after battle after battle. And the lesson for us as Christian leaders is, 
is if you're holding out the vision today, you're going to get attacked. You'll get attacked from outside, you'll get attacked from inside, you'll get attacked from every side. You know? Because, of course, Alexander, standing there, so his own troops could see him, would be equally seen by the enemy. Right? And everything would start to go at him. Now, we just have to realise that the cost of leadership is high. <laughs> that the cost of leadership in our environment is at least uh, having to put so much effort in to this business of leadership that you're going to be tired. You know? And it's going to take its toll on you. But you simply have to factor that in because it's a part of leadership. Now, I'd like to, uh, as I said, raise a, a couple of um, uh, a couple of sort of stratagems, I suppose, um, or, or principles, elements of, of strategy, uh, which I think are very applicable and which I've certainly used as we got the Australian Christian Lobby going and um, as we pursued what we do in the political domain. And I believe it's very, very important for any Christian organisation. Remember, I, I said that the battlefield was a competitive, is a competitive game. You know, it's the ultimate competition. And we too are in a very competitive business. And this first principle that I'll show you here is called centre of gravity. Okay. Now I'll just explain its battlefield origin and then I'll explain how you might want to use it. When uh, commanders are on the battlefield, they are trying to attack that thing in the opposition, which if they can attack it, get to it, will cause all his plans to fall apart. Right? It's called his centre of gravity. And at the same time, they're trying to protect their centre of gravity, right? because it's no good attacking his and leaving your own open. And so a battlefield commander is always trying to balance his resources between the, uh, attacking the opposition's centre of gravity and defending his own. As he does this, um, what he does is he uses what we call decisive points. Uh, because any, any enemy, uh, next one mate, because any enemy who's smart, and about the only one recently who hasn't been was Saddam Hussein, who, who just didn't even try to defend his own centre of gravity, but any enemy who's, far, who's smart will so protect his own centre of gravity, he knows it's his vulnerability, that you've got to go through what we call decisive points to get to it, things which manipulate the centre of gravity. Now, how, how do we apply that in the less battlefield-like, although nonetheless competitive, environments that we find ourselves in, in the sort of business that you and I do for Christ? Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you an example of this in how we've used this particular uh, model in the Australian Christian Lobby with great effect, I might say, with great effect. Because what the centre of gravity does is, is it's aiming to focus all your effort on what matters, okay? This is the important thing. On the battlefield, you never have enough resources. <laughs> and if you, if you don't focus them all as, as uh, effectively as you can at what matters most, okay, you're probably going to lose. Now, you and I know that in the Christian church, we never have enough resources, right? I certainly don't. I'm sure you're in the same boat, okay? And so what we do has to be focused as much as we can on the thing that matters, okay? The thing that's actually going to carry our purpose, right? So the centre of gravity is that thing which is going to cause our mission, our vision, to be achieved. Right? And this is how we use it in the Australian Christian Lobby, which I hope will explain what I'm talking about. Okay, in the Australian Christian Lobby, we realise that our vision, I might say, is to see Christian principles and ethics accepted and influencing the way that we're governed, we do business, and we relate to each other as a community. Okay, that's our vision. And to achieve that, we realise that we've got to be politically effective. Right? So our centre of gravity, the thing that we've got to achieve, that if we don't achieve, it's all a waste of time. If we don't achieve, we'll never achieve our vision, right, is that we've got to be politically effective. Now we said, okay, what are the things we need to do to be able to achieve that? Well, we have to have political influence. And uh, it's interesting that off that, we have two things that fall out of that. One is you've got to carry a big stick because that's what politics is about. So we've got to make, we've got to give a perception at least that there is a Christian constituency and it's thinking. The thinking part's sometimes hard to prove. <laughs> but, uh, but, but nonetheless, that's what we've got to try to give a perception of. And the second thing is in our game, that you've got to have relationships because you can't influence anybody unless you've got relationships. So we need both of those. We need finances, right? I'm sure that blob's going to appear on yours too if you do one of these. Uh, we need to be training the next generation of leaders. Now, interestingly enough, that little blob came from the fact that we put ourselves further out than just the next election. 
So when we looked at our vision and we put ourselves out there and looked back, right, we put ourselves far enough out that we said we've got to, we've got to actually train up the next generation of leaders in the political space, in law, in media, <laughs> and so we're doing something about that through our Compass program. We have to have committed supporters because unless politics sees that you've got people who respond, people who are prepared to, uh, to actually vote <laughs> as their beliefs, as they believe, you know, then politics takes no notice of you. So that word committed is very important and we draw a lot of things from that in terms of what we do. And finally, we've got to have public credibility because I think one of the great weaknesses of Christian advocacy over the years has been failure to have any credibility in the public uh, space, but also in the political space, also with the church, you know. So that public credibility is actually more credibility. Okay? It breaks down into public, church and politics. Now, so what? Well, the so what is that everything we do is tested through that model. <laughs> we, get, we get requests all the time to do stuff. But unless it, were, unless it contributes to one of those five areas, we don't do it. Right? We don't do it. Because I haven't got the resources to be not focusing on what is going to achieve the vision. Right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that if we're going to achieve the vision and we're going to achieve political effectiveness, we've got to be working in all those areas at any one time. Certainly the priority will change from one moment to the next, you know, or from one cycle to the next, one year to the next. The priority with which we address those four might change, but we've got to be working into all of them all the time because political effectiveness, political effectiveness is, is what will cause us to achieve or not achieve our vision. Now, obviously, I'm taking a, a, a totally secular view of this, okay? This is a secular tool, right? But this is how we use it. Okay, now, <clears throat> before I just uh, talk a little bit about leadership, I'll, I'll just open the floor, if I could, and just see if there are any questions on this. Anyone lost on, on this? Because it's a, a really powerful tool, believe me. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have to really think about that, you know, I mean, I could, I could, uh, um, well, well, what's an example of what it might be? Yeah. Question, Sorry, yeah, okay, the question was, what might the big circle, the political effectiveness circle, be <coughs> in church planting? Yeah. Um, first of all, I'd say it will be different in, in each case, and, and let, me, let me say, and I should have said at the beginning of this, that you can't get that big circle wrong, <laughs> okay? That's the first thing. Second thing is, there's never two big circles. <laughs> okay, um, I don't, as a commander on the battlefield, okay, um, uh, I, I had two operations teams, and I had one of them working on the future battle, one working on the current battle. Okay, and they swap around as the current, the future battle became the current battle. And uh, as I would give them their direction for formulating the plans and coming back with options for me for plans for the next cycle. Um, I, one of my tasks was to, for them to work out what the centre of gravity was. Now, initially when we started this, people come back and say, oh, we've got three, you know, mm -mm. Right? Because if you've got three, you immediately split your resources three ways. <laughs> and you can't afford to do that on the battlefield, and I don't think you can afford to do it in Christian work. I can't. Right? So, so the first thing is, you, you've got you to really dig deep, 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 deep down, right? And not accept the first answer, first response and go deeper, right, eh, to get it. And secondly, there'll only ever be one, okay? Um, now, on church, uh, church planting, um, well, I would think if your, if your uh, vision is to, is, to, uh, is to plant a vibrant church in a you know, particular area, uh, depending on the, and, and you've got to do, you, you, um, you're aware of SWOT analysis, you know, strength, weaknesses, yeah, okay. So if you do a, a SWOT analysis, okay, you'll, you'll know what your area is like, you, you, because you've got, to, you've got to know what the area is like, right, to really, to be able to answer that question, right, because you're going to respond to the realities of, of your area that you're in, okay. So, so first of all, your your circle, that circle in the centre, is going to respond to the area. It might be an, an old area, you know, it might be a young area, you know, so the centre of the circle will be different, you know, for those, in those situations. So I, I really can't give you a, <laughs> an easy answer, you know. I, and, and what I'd really encourage you to do too here is to split out of this, okay, 
your theological. I mean, you can come, you can come to something like say, you know, to be Christ-centered, you know, but that's that's not the answer that I'm looking for in this. Okay, what I'm looking for in this is a secular answer. Right? Is is that? It doesn't answer your question fully, but hello. Yeah. So it's not see people converted. Like Sorry. No, no. Example, see people, seeing people, people no, seeing people being converted might be your mission, mm -hmm. yeah. part of your mission. So, so having people converted uh, may end up up here, <laughs> but but down at down, down at the very heart of it is something something uh, more basic that is going to cause you to be able to see people converted. Right? Got it. Now it might be, for instance, you might you might go down and say uh, that the centre of gravity. Is, is to train, right, evangelists, right? Might be to train evangelists, okay? Centre of gravity might be to provide a, um, uh, to provide a venue, you know, it might be in some cases, to provide a venue, right, which attracts people to the church. You see what I mean? Okay, so it's below, it's, it's well below, because this comes later. Right? But, you, you, but you've got to work out what it is that is going to cause people to be converted. Okay? It, it might it might be that uh, you you come up with something in the centre of gravity, which is a means by which you elevate Christ to these people. Probably will be okay, but it, but you've got to go as you've got to take it down as low as you can, right? And keep digging below it. So thanks for giving me that example because that gives the sort of that, that's where you don't stop, right? Okay, you go lower. Right? So Jim, sorry. Hmm. So that means that. Um over time, your centre of gravity will change. Yeah, it may. Yeah. I find for me, it's really funny, we've, um, we've tried to change it, we've reviewed it now twice, and uh, in nine years, we've still come up with the same one. But remember, we're, we're operating, uh, and, and I cut myself out of the, uh, the business because I own this, you know, so uh, I'm biased. But, but it was interesting, people came back to this, you know. But the reason I think for that is that we are a national organisation with a strategic purpose and therefore it was necessarily long range when we set it, when we set it, you know what I mean? It's very long range by nature of the environment that we're working in. But if you're working in an environment where you nonetheless have a vision that's way out here, but you have shorter term cycles to actually get there, then you might have a centre of gravity in one of those shorter term cycles that might need and probably will need reviewing. Just as on the battlefield, I had two operations teams, and in three days we'd be changing the centre of gravity because the situation around has changed. Yeah. But when you're at a very high level, the situation doesn't change fast. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, Ross. Jimmy, uh, you said that um, the aim of uh, is to uh, be attacking your enemy's centre of gravity. Mm. Do you actually work out in a campaign in terms of the ACLs? What that centre of gravity of the opposition is? Yeah, we do. Yeah, but but I'm not I'm not meaning to for you to apply it in that way. <laughs> um, but what what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say to you is that in an organisational sense, okay, we we apply it in this way to for the achievement of our vision. Mm -hmm. So so we're not applying it in the totally competitive way. Now, yes, uh, for us, the Australian Christian Lobby. We're up against the homosexual lobby on gay marriage. We look at what the centre of gravity is, yeah, and we try and attack it, mm -hmm. and we try to protect ours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Jim, mm. so Jim, like for example, in a church, mm. one of the centre of gravity mm. or a centre of gravity mm. could be like relevance. No. No. Because <laughs> no. See, this is the thing again. There'll never be one of one of many centres of gravity. There'll be one. Yeah. So if the as you yeah. said, political effectiveness. Yeah. If if the church's one was going to be uh, social relevance or relevance mm. itself, mm. then it could be no. the, the things that come into it. Then could be like uh, community relevance and. Yeah, but stuff. see, see, the only problem there is now. This is really good. Okay, really good because if 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 relevance is your centre of gravity, right? I'd be really surprised that was the centre of gravity for for a church. Okay, okay. Now, you might be on a line of relevance, right, in your, in your particular area. Relevance might be a real problem, and, and you might end up going down below that, right, to, to, um, uh, to 
you, you, might, you might, for instance, see that uh, making Christ relevant in the local something or other might be a key, might be a centre of gravity for a particular part of your ministry, right? particular part of your ministry. But I'd be surprised, and I, I think really one of the problems with the Uniting Church, for instance, you know, it sees relevance as a centre of gravity, you know. So you can go all over the place if relevance is a centre of gravity. You see what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, so you, you've, got to, you've got to dig right down. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you've got to do it relevant to your vision. What, what is it you're trying to achieve? You know? it, it can be also uh, something like a spiritual effectiveness that describes the basic activity, maybe. But it might be good when you see uh, talking about your position. It's like critiquing, critiquing the culture, mm. but it's to establish to people so what is happening in their culture that you actually want to be effective against. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. You might take it down, you might take it down to that level as long as you can follow the logic train that goes back to your vision, okay? And as long as as you do that, this is the most important thing, right? Because as soon as it's not the most important thing, you're putting your resources into something that's not critical, critical to the achievement of the vision. Would it be correct to say that uh, your centre of gravity is mm. is not your goal, but rather the strength that you need to be able to achieve that goal? I mean, yeah, yeah, political right. political effectiveness can be mm. applied towards mm. you want to be effective towards whatever that goal yeah. may be. Remember defeating the gay lobby, yeah. etc. Re- remember, no, that's right. Remember, we have a vision. It is to see Christian principles and ethics accepted and influencing the way that we're governed, we do business, and we relate to each other as a community. Now, to achieve that, the centre of gravity for us is political effectiveness. Because if we don't achieve that, we don't achieve the vision. See? This is the link. This, this is the link. Right? Would it also be fair to say that um, uh, you can only have one centre of gravity because, by yeah. definition, it's, it's the centre. Uh, yeah, yeah. There are other things... Uh, which revolve around that centre, yeah. but it's the centre where the strength lies. That's right, and that's that's the strength and the terminology. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, with your um, mm. army people, when you've done this, you've sent them back into you know go back into the room with the white paper and delve deeper. How, like, to help us as a as a yeah. group here to work out what our centre mm. of gravity is, what we're trying to achieve. Mm. What do you send them back into the room with? What do you tell them, apart from just dive deeper? Yeah, uh, no, often I'll just say dive deeper because they've, they've got all the information. No, no, they've just sat there for three deep. hours. Yeah, yeah. No, <coughs> if, they've, if, they've got, if they're trying to give me three centres of gravity, I know they're wrong. <laughs> no? So go back and delve deeper, you know, because they know what I'm trying to achieve. I've given them, I've given them the mission, right, or vision, mission on the battlefield or on the battlefield, my intention, right? And, uh, and see, I will test whatever they give me against its, what I think intuitively is its ability to deliver my intent. Uh, okay? So, but if they give me three, I know they're wrong. <laughs> I know we're still up here somewhere and we need to be down here. Uh, Jim, this is not meant to be a smart aleck comment. Mm, mm. Um, I'm just wondering where prayer fits into this. Sorry? I'm just wondering yeah, particularly with this strategy. Prayer fits over all of it. Yeah. Sorry? Prayer fits over it. Right? Now, okay. remember, I said, you know, this, this is a secular, all right? This is a secular um, tool, right, to work out the strategy, right? Now, um, prayer, you know, is, is a fundamental part of what we do. It's in our values, okay? So, so it's sitting there alongside this, right? <coughs> so but... values uh, shape each aspect of your strategy. Well, value, values, values will, um, will direct the method you use to apply your strategy, okay? Right. Yeah. Because remember for us, and, and, and I think no less for the church, you know, that the church is trying to influence a society out there, right, which is a secular society, you know? So, so you've, got to, you've got to look at it first as a problem in that dimension. Then our faith, right, our faith informs how we go about that, right? And that's certainly the case for us. Yeah. 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 No, it's not a smart other question at all. It's good. Yeah. Okay, well, I might go on uh, to some leadership. Right? Now, people can further take this up with me. I know, I know it's difficult to grasp, but let me tell you, if you grasp this, if you can grasp this today, it, it is a really powerful tool. 
is a really powerful tool because you're, you're, you're focusing your effort on that thing which is going to have most effect to achieving your vision. Right? And that puts all your resources in alignment. Right? Puts everything you do in alignment. And if you discipline yourself, which you must if you've got this tool, to always work in those areas that you come up with as essential to achieving it, then all your effort's going in the right place. Right? And you, you're always working to the right direction. Right? You're not leaving something out. Okay, leadership. Okay, uh, you remember this big bloke, Norman Schwarzkopf, in uh, the Gulf War, the great big hulking bloke, the first Gulf War? Okay, so after the war, someone asked him, what do you think are the most important elements of leadership? And he said this. Oops, sorry, that's the ACL leadership hierarchy. I'm on the top, <laughs> everyone else on the bottom. <laughs> oh, sorry, I've, I've gone off the map here. Okay, Schwarzkopf didn't say this. Okay, go to the next one, mate. Yeah. Right, before we get to Schwarzkopf, <laughs> what I want to show you here is a leadership model which I'd really encourage you uh, to look at using uh, in any leadership task, right? And this now gets down to, the, to any task, including church planning. And what it says is that there are three needs that you have to address as a leader. Now, I can tell you, I've used this model, I've sat down with it. Uh, as I took over a counter-terrorist squadron, the SAS regiment, the Australian Christian Lobby, and I've applied it in all those situations, as diverse as they are, and it works, okay? Because as a leader, you're trying to satisfy three needs. The task needs, okay? You have needs which fall out of what you've been given to do by God. Right? You have group needs. If you're leading something, you've got to meet the needs of the group that you're leading. Right? You've got to accept that it's a group and you've got to help give it identity. Right? So there are needs that that group has in order to give it that identity, uh, in order to give it a group morale. Okay? And so you've got to meet those needs. And you have to meet individual needs. Okay? Because uh, as we all know, you know, individuals particularly these days are under more and more stress. Now, if you sit down and at the beginning of any task, and just say to yourself, okay, what are the needs of the task? What are the group needs? And just list them. And what are the individual needs of people in the, uh, that I'm, I'm leading in this, uh, in this great thing? And you just list them down and then put a, a, a priority against them, right? You will, you will find that if you work just to something like the top three or the top five of those, of those priorities and satisfy them, that you will have a well-functioning team. Right? Now, why do I say that? Because most leaders don't, don't order what they do so that they fulfill those three needs areas. But if you are fulfilling them, you'll never fulfill them fully. When I took over the SAS regiment and I did this exercise, I must have ended up with about 50, no, 50 needs in these areas. But I just selected out about five, the five most important ones in each of those areas. And if you're, if you're working into those three needs areas, even at the top five level of priority, right, you'll have an organisation, I promise you, that is, is humming along. Now, there's, there's uh, and, and I'll, just give you, I'll just give you an example of uh, sort of lateral thinking, I, I, I think, on, on needs. Uh, when I was in the SAS regiment, one of our biggest problems was that we lose about 30 blokes a year. Now, it takes us so much trouble to get these blokes in, and, and usually they've been there at least four years, sometimes 10, maybe longer. But we lose them and we can't afford to lose them. And uh, I realised that, that one of the reasons that they were, were, were leaving, one of the reasons they were leaving, in fact the main reason, was because the individual needs, not of them, or their individual needs I suppose, was to keep their wives happy. <laughs> And the wives were saying, hey, stupid, you're away seven months of the year. You haven't been home for a Christmas in three years. You're earning this much money. Joe Bloggs is over the road there. He, he's away half as much time. He works up in the mines up in, uh, in the northwest. And, he, and what are you doing? <laughs> and so mum would pull him out, you know. And so what we, what we did was, as a result of that, was we set up, for instance, um, kids camps, you know. Dads, dads and kids camps. And I, I got the dads to take the kids away and gave these kids experiences they would never get 
experiences they'd go back and talk to all their friends in school and suddenly it was really great having dad in the SAS regiment. Huh? And mum thought, oh, this is all right, right? And mum's had a break, right? We ran uh, uh, days where we, we took the mums down and actually took them into, you'll excuse me, but this is what it's called, the killing house, uh, where we, we have an indoor range. And uh, the blokes go into this thing and they're there shooting live ammunition around each other's heads. It's why this young bloke was killed the other day. Uh, all day. <laughs> all day. And they do it day after day after day after day. You know? And mums wonder why they get home stressed. But we put mums in the room. Caught in a box so they didn't get shot. But, <laughs> but uh, let them see it, you know, with live ammunition, you know. And mums suddenly start to understand. So individual needs, you know, doing an analysis of the individual needs of your team are really, really important and can lead to really beneficial results, okay. So I just use that as an example because people look at the individual one and, and sometimes are surprised by it. Okay, now the, another refinement of this I just uh, encourage you in is this. If you... See there I put some extra dots or balls on group needs because there are informal groups in every group, informal groups. And you have to make sure that you're meeting the informal group needs as much as the formal group needs. Really, really important. Uh, in the SAS regiment, one group of people like this was warrant officers. They sit outside the command strain. And uh, I used to get him in every year, and I'd talk to him, i say, this isn't your opportunity to tell me what an idiot your boss is, but I want to, I really value you, Blakes, and I want you to tell me what you think about the way we're going. And they do it, and, and they were lifted up, you know. Um, in churches, certainly in my church, won't be the case in the church plant, I guess, but in my church, the church founders are an informal group. You get that lot offside, you're in big trouble, okay? But they have no role within the organisation within the church, necessarily. You know? Not by being church founders, but uh, they're critical to the, to the harmony of the church. So don't forget uh, informal groups as well. Now that bloke Norman Schwarzkopf, okay, when he was asked at the end of the Gulf War, what do you think are the most important elements of leadership? He said this. He said, select the very best people. We don't always get to do that in the church, okay? But select the very best people, set them loose. So I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. Lead from the front and take them with you and be worthy of them. Now, I think we'd all agree with the second two and they're pretty obvious, but I want to look at this first one. Select the very best people and set them loose. Why do we need to set people loose? Okay. Anyone like to suggest why we might want to do it? Yeah. Do you mean set them loose as in don't choose them or have them on board? No. Uh, no. I mean, once, you, once you've got them, you've given them the job, set them loose. Yeah. So they can take initiative and responsibility. Good idea. Initiative and responsibility, yep. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Why, why is it particularly important these days to set people loose? Any ideas? Just think of the environment we're in. Rapid change. Good idea. Rapid change, okay? If you've got an environment where things change quickly, how can you possibly run everything from the centre? How can you possibly make the decisions from the centre without slowing the whole thing down? Okay? So setting people loose is really, really important. We just go on to the next two, second one. Right, this is the environment we're in today, of course. This one really annoys me <laughs> when someone does it, especially when the email's that long. <laughs> okay, if we just, just go on to uh, the next slide. This environment that we're in these days, it's very fast, okay? It's very fast. And if we don't appreciate that, we both miss opportunity, right? Miss opportunity and we'll get stuck, right? Or get caught up on how fast the environment is. It is, it is critical environment because when something moves quickly, it's very hard to fix an error, right? So it's a critical environment, and it's full of talented people. I'm just amazed at the young people these days. So I think there's so much potential in young people these days. I had uh, a Minister of Defence actually uh, tell me, all oh, these young people these days, he said, not much chop, are they? And I said to him, I said, well, I think they're the best we've ever seen, that they're no chops because we're not leading them right. And I mean that, you know. <laughs> I think we've never had better raw material. And uh, I think uh, yeah, our churches are absolutely full of them. But those who actually win in this environment are 
those who, yeah, just click through them, who move the fastest, right? Who get it right and who maximise their people's talents, right? We must maximise all this talent that's out there in our people. So leaders must set people loose, okay? And it's, we do it in order to maximise the individual and organisational potential. We do it because speed and tempo that we need to operate at these days as organisations. And also we do it because once we set people loose, we're we, we can concentrate ourselves on those things we should be as leaders, which are maintaining the vision, right? Maintaining the vision, keeping it out there in front of people, on communication, right? Remember Fisher, communication, 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 uh, facilitating subordinate success. If you want to be a good leader, the best way to do it is if someone else thinks something's his idea. <laughs> There's no better way of getting leadership or applying leadership that you get people to think something is their idea. It's so hard when you know it was your idea. <laughs> but there's nothing better, nothing more powerful than someone going out there with an idea you sowed but uh, was his idea. Or better still, was his idea from the start. Okay. And we've got to be preparing to pass the baton. Right? Again, in that vision, when we put ourselves right out here, we've got to think about handover. I look at it just in my domain, you look at uh, the Liberal Party, the mess it's in now, all because John Howard didn't know when to pass the baton. You look at this, uh, and you know, um, I'm not enamoured of the Christian Democratic Party, but if I look at the Christian Democratic Party, I, I am um, very respectful of Fred Nile for what he's done over the years. But that party is going to die, it'll never achieve anything, because when Fred goes, there's no succession plan. It's just going to die. So preparing to pass the baton is a very, very important thing. Now, I just want to talk very quickly about how we actually do this. How do we set people loose, okay? And we, we have in the army what we call directive control. And, and this is how we do it. We do it on the battlefield for all the reasons we need to do it here in, uh, in our general environment today. And that is the speed, the fact that people are isolated, might be spread around, uh, because we've got talented people. All those things I mentioned before. Okay, if we just look at this. First of all, you've got to let your, your subordinates know, the people that you're working with, not how to do something. You don't try and tell them how to do something, but you tell them what your intent is for the end. What, how you want to see, what you want to see at the end, right? And then let them go out and do it. If you do this, you'll have people take the initiative. You'll have people apply all their talent, okay? But if you become a person who tells them how to get there, then you won't. Right? But importantly, when you do this, you, you've got to learn to give your intent. You've got to get people used to the fact that you're not going to tell them what to do at every stage. You've got to, you've got to get them used to it and, and get them used to fulfilling your intent but it's extremely powerful if you can get it into an organisation. And just finally there, what's really important is it requires trust. I once, uh, the, the people who brought this into the battlefield were uh, acknowledged as the Germans. And um, if you think, if those of you who might be military, uh, military historians, maybe not, um, but in the North African campaign, Rommel ran rings around everybody, right? Um, Montgomery only beat him because he had so many more troops than him in the end. But every British general they sent, Rommel defeated, with almost nothing. And the reason he did it was because they worked to intent. Now, I was with a German officer uh, uh, instructing at the British Army Staff College. And he said to me, he said, well, the reason this works, he said, is this. Because a German officer will never get into trouble for making a mistake. Never get into trouble for making a mistake. Because if you're going to have people working to your intent, if you want them to take the initiative all the time, then you can't dump on them if they make a mistake. But he said, what will happen to a German officer is if he works outside my intent, right? If he's trying to do something outside my intent, there's no second gaze, finished, okay? finished. So you get, you get never dumped on for making a mistake. But everybody knows that you get really dumped on <laughs> for working outside the intent. Okay. Now I've rushed through that and uh, I'll open up for a few questions at the end here uh, on that particular thing, uh, on 
on directive control. But I'll just finish off by, oh no, I won't. I'll, I'll open up for any questions on what I've just said there. It's a very, very important concept and I know I've gone through it very, very quickly. Working to intent, directive control. Do people have any questions on it? Yeah. Just one quick question. Mm. With strategy and intent. Yeah. So if we're going to communicate the strategy, mm. how do we make sure we don't tell everyone how to do it? Yeah. Well, you, you have to discipline yourself. Right? You have to discipline yourself. Now, now let me say, there will be some things, there, there will be some things, and uh, we always accept this, that you might have to actually detail. Right? So uh, you might say to someone, you know, uh, my, my intention is for you to do this, but I don't want you, right? you mustn't do this. Okay? So I, I might say to my people, well, you know, we want you to beat gay marriage, right? but uh, we don't want you to communicate it in such a way as, as homosexual people are hurt in the process. Right? So you can put in, you can put in don't do's, right? You can put in don't do's. Many of those don't do's will be things which will be part of your organisational values, right? That you might restate. But what you try to do, if, if you're going to maximise people's own ability and initiative, you put as few of those in as you can. As few of those in as you can. Really important. So they've got as much room as possible to apply their own initiative. Because remember too that at, the, at whatever level people are working, and I, I, I know this myself in a nine-man organisation these days, was certainly the case in the 3,000-man one, that, that I can't hope to know all the details of what this, people, this person's presented with down here. So if you get to the, the lucky situation where you, you're planting um, a number of churches, right? then the people who are out there, the only ones that know the situation out in those individual places. And so the only way to, to maximise the, uh, the ability of those people, to maximise their initiative, is to give them as much freedom as you can and simply frame your intent. Right? Give them an intent for what you want to achieve, but not tell them how to do it. Any others? Probably raced it. It's about a three-week course on uh, <laughs> the British Army Staff College. Okay, just just to finish up then, um, I just want to encourage you that uh, in leadership, and I think this is one of the things that's really failed the church. Is first of all, you've got to guard your courage. Okay, and uh, I uh, I mentioned this roots for radicals. This deeply felt wish for harmony constantly tends people, especially idealists, to avoid the necessary friction that comes when real differences are faced. Right? Leadership is not about not taking on hard issues, not correcting people right? when they break uh, the ideals and values of the organisation. Right? You have to accept that as a leader. And importantly, and I, as I said before, leadership is all about change. It's about moving from somewhere to somewhere else. And there is no nice, polite way to get change. <laughs> there just isn't. <laughs> Some people you've got to butt heads with, okay? But it's part of leadership. The second one is, and uh, a really important one for me, more battles in history have been lost because commanders didn't accept the battlefield as it was. They saw the battlefield they wanted to see. People in World War I only kept throwing thousands, tens of thousands of men into machine guns because they wouldn't accept that machine guns did that. This is ridiculous, you know? But it happened, you know? And it happens in much smaller ways today. So first, everything that is developing, that is, is developing. Nothing is static, okay? We've got to accept the fact that the real world out there is moving all the time. Second, development only occurs within the context of relationships, right? Only occurs within the context of relationships. And this again is what ties leadership to strategy, right? Leadership's about people, leadership's about the spirit. And so therefore, unless you're developing relationships as a leader, using relationships to move your organisation forward, then you're not in the real world because that's where it happens. And if you're doing it powerfully, You'll do it through directive control, right, through putting your intent out there and developing trust with people in those relationships for them to go out and apply their initiative. And finally, don't lose sight of the mission, okay? 
To be moral is to struggle in a world as it is while guided by the values of the world as it should be. Not to sit in pews saying, ain't things awful. Okay? I'd really encourage, as I've said before, that uh, I personally find it extremely encouraging that you're here, extremely encouraging to see what you're doing uh, under L here, and the fact that it's across denominations, so I think it's fantastic, okay? But don't lose sight of the, of the mission, all right? Uh, I really encourage you to develop churches that don't just sit there and say, ain't it awful, but actually get out there and do it. And if you're going to do it, you've got to get this unique blend of strategy and leadership, okay? Both together, because leadership moves the thing and strategy <coughs> moves the dots, okay? God bless you. Thanks very much.